Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 392. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of FinTech Nexus. Before we get started, I want to tell you about FinTech Nexus LATAM, happening in Miami on December 13th and 14th. Latin America continues to be the hottest fintech region on the planet, and our 2022 event will feature all the leading players. So join the LATAM fintech community this year, where you'll meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Register at fintechnexus.com slash LATAM and use the discount code PODCAST for 15% off. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome John Wu. He is the president of Alva Labs, which is the organization behind the Avalanche blockchain. I wanted to get John on the show because he's got a really interesting history, and I think the Avalanche blockchain is one that should be paid attention to by everybody, really in fintech and traditional banking for that matter. We talk about what makes Avalanche different, what makes Ava Labs different. We talk about how they're working with traditional institutions today, including the new tokenization that was announced with KKR, one of their funds. We actually talk about why that was a big deal. We talk about the the popular use cases for Avalanche. We explain what subnets are and why they're important. We talk about DeFi and uh, the crypto winter and much more. It was a fascinating discussion. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, John. Peter, pleasure to be here. You guys have done a lot of great work in the lending space and then tech in general. Always thought leaders. I'm glad I can be on and hopefully share something that your audience will enjoy. Yeah, well, great to have you. Thank you for that. So why don't we get started by giving listeners a little bit of background about yourself. You've had an interesting career. I know we met uh, a few years back when you, I think, were trying to do some blockchain investing. Tell us a little bit about your career um, to date before you got to Avalabs. Yeah, well, thank you, Peter. So I was a tech investor in the hedge fund and private equity sense. I worked some pretty large funds. It was a great experience. And then roughly in 2014, when I converted my fund into a family office, I started investing in what I call off-the-run stuff. And that included Bitcoin back in 2014. Yeah, when I met you, it was somewhere 16 or 17 early days when I was trying to find other great blockchain investments. So something happened in 2017 that got me even more excited, which was the ICO boom. Right. And to me, the ICO boom was a unbelievable first use case that I saw in crypto. Before, I was still very skeptical in terms of utility. I thought mm-hmm. Bitcoin could be a store of value and it was a great potential investment. But I didn't really realize that there could be utility until 2017. And I had the notion that the ICO construct could be used in a compliant, regulatory compliant way to do what I call an STO, security token offering. Mm-hmm. And in the US, you have the security laws in 1933-34, and you need to rely on exemptions like Reg D. So I became CEO of the Digital Assets Group in, in late 17, 2018-ish, where I was trying to tokenize private securities. Now, the team did a great job. We got it up and running from a regulatory compliance perspective. But from a 
pragmatic perspective, commercially speaking, it was just too early. If you're a private security like Uber or Lyft or Airbnb, you can just back then, now they're all public companies. So back then you can easily go to Sand Hill Road and raise as much money as you want. On top of that, the technology in permissionless world was not quite there. Frankly, if there was an IPO level type of uh, security token offering, Ethereum wasn't scalable or would cost a lot of money to do it. And that's where Avalanche came in. There is mm-hmm. a professor by the name of Eamon Gunseer. He was a distributed systems professor at Cornell University. He and his PhD students were creating a whole new consensus protocol in order to become a faster and more scalable while still secure blockchain and create an architecture that will allow for that. So since then, there's a whole bunch of other layer ones, including Avalanche, that popped up. And layer two is all trying to solve that scale problem I just talked about in 2018. So the space as a whole has advanced a lot. You know, three years ago, Avalabs, the team behind Avalanche, was 10 people in a room. We ended up raising our equity capital from Andreessen Horowitz, Polychain Capital, as well as Initialized Capital. And since then, we've been off to the races. We're the fastest chain out there. We have fastest ecosystem that's growing. And we have over 200 people in the firm now. Okay. So then, so you got involved right near the very beginning of this. I mean, tell us a little bit about how did you get involved in the first place? So when I was in as a pure investor in the space before I became an operator with the security token platform where I just talked about, I applied my trade as a professional investor previously, which is do research, do primary research. Mm-hmm. My grad school was Harvard. My undergrad was Cornell. I got in touch with both schools and tried to find out who were the best people in the space at each one of them. Eamon Gunseer, the distributed systems professor in the computer science department at Cornell, is a revered professor and, and a person in the space. In 2003, he had actually invented the first proof of work protocol. This is way before Bitcoin. It didn't take off, uh, but he's been in the space and well-known for a long, long time. So I got in touch with him and in either 16 or 17 circa that area, he and I became the first advisors to the Cornell University Blockchain Club. He was Uh. a faculty advisor. I was the external advisor. From there, it was kind of a great bond and off to the races, if you will. So tell us a little bit about what makes the Avalanche blockchain unique? I know you touched on it, talking about speed, but obviously there's other layer ones. There's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum, there's um, several others as well. What is it that makes Avalanche unique? So I think there are two things that make it stand out. First of all, I have to premise everything is I do believe in a multi-chain world. Right. Even today in social media, it's not like Facebook is the only place. You have Twitter, you have Snapchat, you have TikTok. There's going to be a group But what stands out about Avalanche is when they try to solve that trilemma problem, they started at the consensus protocol itself. So there's a new paradigm in consensus protocol in the history of distributed systems. First, there's one 40 years ago, the classical protocol. A lot of the private blockchains are based off of that paradigm. Then you had with Bitcoin Nakamoto protocol. That was circa 2008. But Gun and the team thought in order to get the scale and the speed solve. Let's create a whole new consensus protocol that can get to consensus faster. That's the random sampling method avalanche protocol. That allows what we call instant finality. Settlement and payment happen literally instantaneously. You know, think in the real world or traditional world, 
Credit cards take 30 days to settle because the merchant have to wait for the banks to, to collect the money. Even stocks take two days to settle because of intermediaries and because of other technology bottlenecks, if you will. So that instant finality allows payment and exchange of financial assets. It's a huge competitive advantage for that. The second thing that makes it gives Avalanche, the chain, a competitive edge over some other players is the way it scales in the architecture. There is a horizontal subnetwork style of scaling where developers can basically spin up their own blockchain with their own execution environment. That execution environment, if you are a gaming company, you obviously care far more about fast transactions. If you are a compliant financial services firm, you probably want it to be set the rules of the validator set so that it's very compliant with either AML, KYC, or accreditation type rules. So it allows you to create your own execution environment and let you create your own parameters. And then therefore, each blockchain as a service, if you will, subnet is your own layer one. Let Ava Labs, a team manage the substrate for you. You get the benefit of the Avalanche consensus, but yet you have your own execution environment to your own requirements. So that's another very exciting thing that separates Avalanche from some of the other singular mode type blockchains out there. So should we think of subnets then as like a layer two? Because it sounds like what you're describing is... More like a layer one because it's using the same consensus as Avalanche. Maybe Avalanche should be a layer zero, if you will. (laughs) Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So then how are you working or are you working with, you know, traditional financial institutions today? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, that's dear to your mission and to bring, you know, real world assets to a more efficient platform, whether it be in P2P lending or in on the blockchain for our case. So another thing that differentiates us is we've always had a mission to be multi-vertical, if you will, to not only be very good for the DeFi on-chain crypto native applications, but also to be able to tokenize real world assets, financial assets. And the market for that obviously is far greater than, than the 150 or, or so billion dollars in the DeFi world. We have activity and BD reach out to many, many financial services firms. In fact, they're reaching out to us. Most recently, you probably read in the news that KKR tokenized a slice of their fund on the Avalanche blockchain. This is basically the the original mission I had when I was CEO of the Digital Assets Group at Shares Post. I was trying to create more access to hard-to-find alternative assets or securities and the tokenization mechanism is actually a very eloquent way to allow issuers to issue the right of ownership of an asset. And it's a lot easier for users to actually own that, especially when you have the rules of ownership and transfer encoded into the smart contract itself. Right, right. So then when you look at like tokenization, are there certain assets that you think, like you've talked about the KKR you know, fund, that's a real world use case, but are there certain assets that lend themselves more readily to tokenization? Yeah. So I'll start with the benefits and then we can work backwards to which assets have the benefit of these two greater benefits on the meta level. Number one thing is operational efficiency. Having everyone work off of a shared source of truth in a distributed ledger allows for any vertical to cut out intermediaries and also to improve workflow 
automation as well as database management. So therefore, you can literally save a lot of time and costs by having it on a proper blockchain, whether it be a permissionless or a closed, but with many participant blockchain. So that's the first benefit. The second benefit is the actual tokenization. Again, tokenizing the right of ownership and putting on a preferably permissionless blockchain, you've already accomplished besides cutting out intermediaries, you're automating, you're also providing transparency so people can see and you have a proof of transaction history on this blockchain that even if you're not, if your goal is not to disintermediate, you help the auditors audit because in theory, they can get access with transparent data far easier and far faster. You can help servicers on loans get to their end goals a lot faster because again, they have access to that instead of calling, using APIs, calling data from four or five different sources and having to bundle and reconcile themselves. So the type of assets that are benefiting from the tokenization as well as the workflow automation aspects of blockchain and crypto, there's a lot, but the best ones will be the ones that have a complex workflow first, and then also ones that have low access points to, I would call it, the um, individual markets, whether that be qualified purchasers or accredited investors, because those individuals now are big and disproportionate amount of the assets in terms of net worth now. And there's no reason why they can't go and purchase things directly like a large fund does. Right. There's certainly been a lot of talk about in the securitization space. And I know that we've got Mike Cagney's figure. They've originated all of their loans on chain with their particular protocol. But is securitization one of the things you're thinking about here? Absolutely. And I think he's done a great job. And he's highlighted in the HELOC world how much cost he's taken out of the system. I think their blockchain, though, is a private, private, private blockchain. And that doesn't take advantage of the full benefits of a lot of the advantages of a permissionless world. One of the benefits of an avalanche sub-network is you can start out as private, but you have an easy access to the permissionless world because it's almost like an on-off switch that you can just turn on. It's like an API key and you just plug into the to the uh, benefit of the rest of the ecosystem. You don't really get the benefit of the composability where other developers are developing, taking advantage of the substrate and building things on top, making more efficiencies. So kudos to him. Anyone that is helpful in advancing this cause, if you will, should be complimented. Right. And I think the lending space is one that is, you know, it does seem to fit really well with taking out the efficiencies. There's lots and lots of disparate kind of data sets that need to kind of be talked together. And then, you know, when you do like traditional securitizations, they don't actually take the entire data set. They take samples. And it just seems like to me is ludicrous. That made sense 30 years ago when computing power was really low and expensive. Now you should be doing it all. But, But beyond the lending area. What other use cases? I mean, are we talking about tokenizing Picassos? Are we talking about tokenizing real estate? I mean, what are some of the things? So obviously, real estate has been talked about for a long time. And on paper, real estate sounds like it checks off all the boxes. Right. The issue with real estate, however, is even though it benefits well from the efficiencies, as well as the fractionalization, all the benefits of tokenization, on the demand side, real estate, frankly, is a very local phenomenon. Right. So just because you can buy a piece of an apartment that's in Denver on some street doesn't mean you will. It's not like a stock where it's like, okay, Starbucks, I just had some Starbucks. It's a visceral feel with this product that I love. So I think 
real estate is one that's been talked about a lot from people because it meets like the technological checkboxes, but from the demand side, it's been a lot harder to do. What is, I think, some very interesting things happening right now, definitely art. You're going to see people doing it similarly with wine. You're also going to see it in a non-financial services manner. You've already had loyalty points being tokenized by certain brands. You're seeing fan engagement tokens by professional sports leagues all being done. So there's a lot of tokenization of quote-unquote real-world assets that's happening, not just in financial services, but in the general greater enterprise world. You just certainly start to hear about them. But I think if you went to the average person in the street, they wouldn't even know what the word tokenization meant. What will be the catalyst, do you think, to really grow the sort of the variety of assets that are tokenized? What do you think we can do to really accelerate this process? Before I answer that question, by the way, the dream is that the average person never has to know or know the word blockchain. It's no different from the average person working in a corporation doesn't even know that the stuff that they're doing on their computer is housed in some AWS, either the compute or the storage is being housed at Amazon somewhere. That's the goal, to obfuscate it so that it's just part of the flow of what you do. But after people in the enterprise recognize that it is happening, I guess your question comes down to like, What is that big killer app? So first of all, there is no killer app yet. Otherwise, we wouldn't (laughs) be talking about it. I think the killer function is still tokenization Mm -hmm. because tokenizing something really is something that allows you to embed the rules of ownership as well, the rules of exchange into the code. And when you do that, it's a far more eloquent solution. It allows issuers to issue easier and allows users to actually own and transfer a lot easier. However, for that to really, really, really take off from a financial services perspective, we need clarity on regulation. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is the first order of business is, and I think we are getting there and working on it, is probably establishing like a USDC as tender, as legal tender. So for instance, Ava Labs, Team Behind Avalanche, is working with Deloitte. Deloitte is building an application on top of Avalanche for FEMA, the federal government mm. agency that, that basically needs to deal with disaster recovery in a very fast manner. When, when a hurricane blows through a small town, they need everyone in the supply chain, whether it's FEMA to the local counties, to the insurance companies, to the third service party providers that clear trees or pave roads uh, or building houses to the individuals who get their insurance checks. All They want everyone to get that info very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. However, they're only doing one side of the benefit of blockchain, which is they're creating this application on the Avalanche blockchain so that people can easily access that information, that one shares source of truth quickly. Ultimately, what their dream would be is that they can match that flow of information with the flow of payment. And that requires that USDC or some other construct be established as legal tender. And then you really unleash the power of the blockchain. So to answer your question, three steps back, there is no killer app yet. I think there is a killer function. And for that killer function to happen, you need more clarity on the regulation that we're moving towards and starts with the USDC. Right. That's really interesting. And then then you kind of start to get into the potential of the programmability of money. This is a programmable construct. We can't even imagine the the end use cases here. It's like they couldn't have imagined Facebook 
50 years ago. It's like we can't imagine programmable money, but I'd love to, I'd love you to imagine it right now. I'm sure you've thought about this um, oh, to a large extent. So, how does programmable money fit into sort of the avalanche vision? I call Web3 the internet of value. Mm-hmm. And well, Web1 way back when was the internet of information, if you will. That's Web1, in my opinion. It made uh, moving information around the days of the early search engines, made information discovery a lot easier and free or almost free. And then Web2 was not just reading information, but also writing information. Social media allowed everyone to be a publisher quite easily. Web3 is about moving value around relatively easily through that what I call the tokenization function. And you're right. Once there is tokenization, I think there are applications that we haven't even really thought of today. I'll give you one example that is already starting, but it's not really big. You get to tokenize anything that has value, anything that has a cash flow or income stream associated with it, and be able to embed the rules of transferring that value around. So there's a a company called Brave. They have the Brave browser and Brave search engine. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest problems right now in terms of Web2 is that you give up a lot of your identity and your privacy for the efficiencies of communicating on Web2, and then they use it to basically make money off of you. So Brave basically blocks the tracking of your digital fingerprint and your search history and how you move around the internet and allows you to opt in to whether you want to get advertising or not. And if you do, they will pay you directly a piece of that through the basic attention token. So basically what they've done is tokenize your digital traffic or your digital graph or your digital Mm. fingerprint and created an asset there, allowing you to decide self-sovereign identity, allowing you to decide whether you want to keep your privacy or whether you want to use that and get paid directly. Now, the market, again, this market is still very small, but that's the vision. And it's already starting to happen in small slices. These are things that will come up that we haven't even really fully imagined just yet. This goes back to your earlier point. Right, right. So let's talk about the fintech space and the banking space or traditional finance, shall we say, because in some ways, I lump fintech in with traditional finance when it comes to this space. So how should sort of those people who are, they're in finance today, whether it's fintech or or tradfi, how do you think they should think about the crypto space right now? Like, where is the disruption coming for them first? When I think about fintech, it's trying to make things more efficient on existing rails that exist in TradFi, mm-hmm. if you will. Yep. And most of that is done really on the front end. So the user, when they trade crypto on PayPal, they have no idea how messy it is in the back end. But to the user or using Venmo for traditional fiat, it's just so easy to them. So a lot of fintech, in my opinion, has been on the front end with minimal back end stuff. Blockchain, as we talked about with the efficiencies earlier, that is about the back end. So there's a lot of complementary work that could be done between fintech leaders and blockchain leaders. In fact, I would say the synergies are great because fintech dApps and and new neo banks and all these different companies have been well-funded from Silicon Valley. They're very adept at UI, UX, and understanding the end user, far better than blockchain developers are right now. Maybe that'll change over time, but there's a good window here where the two technology or products from both sides can work together, hopefully to create great synergy. Right, right. Yep, that makes sense. So then 
I want to just touch on sort of the downturn in the crypto market, certainly the price of uh, tokens. We're down, you know, I think it was from $3 trillion down to around $1 trillion over the last 12 months. How has that impacted Ava Labs? Has it been negative, positive? And what are your thoughts on that? So from an operating perspective and an activity perspective, it really hasn't affected Ava Labs. Um, there is more inbound requests, more development happening. In fact, transactions on a, a Vox terms as opposed to dollar terms is at all time highs, whether it's transactions, you know, there's more transactions in the Avalanche ecosystem than there are on a daily basis of Ethereum now. Number of developers coming in, number of uh, inbound resumes for people who want to work at Avalabs has only increased and, and they literally are at all time highs. You know, no one can escape the fact that the prices are down. So I think what that has led to basically is the consumer side, maybe the demand side may have uh, a slower pipeline right now. You know, the world works in strange ways, but when we were in a bull, bull, bull market in 2021, not only did the interest from the developer and the enterprise side start to come in well, but the user side was growing really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. So I think in the down market, you lose some of the speculative user, but you still have the utility user, if you will. Right, right. Okay. When it comes to decentralized finance or DeFi, I have primarily a traditional fintech audience what are some of the things that you would like to for them to understand about DeFi and where it's going? So DeFi is very rules-based. And if you go back to the recent issues with some of the uh, platforms, like we call them CFI, centralized finance type platforms, whether it be BlockFi, Celos, or um, Voyager, they were really more centralized entities in their on-ramps in the DeFi world. So the mistakes that were being made there are similar to any TradFi. They were unsecure lending, there was mismatch in duration, there was over leverage, and there were black boxes in how they operate to their end customers. The irony is during all that massive sell-down when these companies were facing real stress, what you saw was the lending apps, they did not have any problems. They continued to function. Yes, they lost assets, but they continued to function. That's because everything was based on rules or based on code and they executed automatically. So I think what TradFi will really appreciate from DeFi one day is that there's benefits of being very strict code-based rule as opposed to subjectivity of a human being and having to trust that human being. Now, that's not to say that you can completely disintermediate everything in the TradFi world because there are places where I think you absolutely need some sort of regulation to protect consumers from fraud and from scams and from all of that. So you do need a Web 2.5 before you can get to a Web 3, and 2 and 3 have to work together. I also think another big function that needs to happen at some point is identity. So in DeFi, you don't really get the benefit of collateral because you have to over-collateral a lot of things because everything's rules-based. You don't have the uh, FICO score of an individual or figuring out like whether this person can pay down this amount of debt and have less debt than you would and borrow like you do, or basically have less collateralized and be able to borrow more. So until you have good identity 
and somehow we maintain the privacy on the DeFi ecosystem, which people are working on right now, having cryptography, uh, cryptography experts trying to figure out how to keep the identities private with the information public, you're not going to get the full leverage of DeFi. Okay, then. So last question, I'd love to kind of get your your vision for Ava Labs. What's its role going to be in the, the future of the crypto space? Well, I think, again, there's going to be a multi-chain world in the, in the next five years. Ava Labs and Ava Lanch will be one of them. The goal of Ava Labs is kind of very simple. Uh, it's a permissionless world. So Ava Labs is a blockchain infrastructure company. It maintains and upgrades Avalanche, the operating system, if you will, but it also creates SDKs to make it easy for developers to onboard. We talked about subnets. That's something to help gaming experts worry about just the gaming functionality, not worry about bridges, not worry about you know the underlying layer one substrate. So providing easy development tools and SDKs for developers to create innovative applications will lead to users wanting to use those applications on chain. And to do that, Ava Labs has also created what we call Core Wallet. Core Wallet is going to be something that gives you Web3 functionality, but looks and feels more like a Web2 Schwab wallet, if you will. So we are creating tools and things that allow developers and users to access the Avalanche blockchain in a more speedy manner. Okay, we'll have to leave it there, John. It's always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Peter, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You know, there's no question that crypto enthusiasm has waned a little bit this year. Obviously, it's reflected in the asset prices. But when I hear John talk and uh, talk to others in the space, what strikes me is that the technology underpinning all this, this is what's exciting. We've had several guests this year that have talked about different facets of this technology. And I think what we have is the whole idea of smart contracts and having complex processes all be brought on chain, having it be transparent and immutable. Those are things that are really game-changing. And I think we are going to kind of sometime soon remove this sort of relationship between crypto prices and the technology itself. Because when I talk to people in the fintech space and the traditional finance world that are interested in crypto, they don't really care about the price at all. It's all about the technology. And that's really what you know John was sort of reflecting on then. And uh, I'm very bullish on the technology that is uh, behind a lot of these great um, blockchains like Avalanche. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.